So I'd say for me, you can spend a lot of money on marketing and not really get a return. You can also spend a lot of money on hiring a too big a team, which you need at certain points, but just make sure you time it right. And then have a little disaster fund because there's always going to be that, you know, factory ringing you up and I don't know, your formula hasn't worked or something or whatever it is. Brand Growth Heroes is the business podcast for the founders of food, beverage, and other consumer goods brands, and is ranked in the top 1.5% of all podcasts worldwide. Here our guests talk not only about their brand purpose or why, but also how where they play, who they employ, and how they work has driven their incredible success. As the leader of a grocery brand, have you ever thought it would be great to be able to pool your central costs with other brands like yours? I certainly considered it when I was launching Goo Chocolate Puds in France years ago. And as a result, I created a joined up field sales team with Innocent France for the French market. And it was certainly something worth doing for the period of time it worked for both businesses. I wanted to explore what this looks like today. So in this next episode, I talked to Ben Arbib, founder of Rebel Kitchen and more recently Nurture Brands, a cohort of eight better for you brands that mutualize a lot of their costs. Ben explains how the Nurture Brands shared model works, why he started it and all the economics behind it. Don't miss this one. Ben Arbib of Nurture Brands and Rebel Kitchen, welcome to Brand Growth Heroes. How are you doing? I'm doing great, thanks. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's wonderful to have you on. So look, Ben, we've invited you today because you've got a really, really interesting business model with Nurture Brands and one which is particularly interesting at the moment, given the difficult economic circumstances, I think, for lots of founders out there who are finding it really tough to scale, particularly very small brands in that early stage of growth when you've started to get a bit of traction, but you haven't quite made it to the five million mark. But before we get into that, tell us, how did you get into food and drink? How did you start your company, Rebel Kitchen? And why did you start it? Take us on that journey. Yeah, it was quite an unconventional route into, into the food industry. I, I, I spent most of my 20s actually as an investment banker and then a tech entrepreneur in a very different industry, in the, in the betting industry. Um, but I must say that was kind of like my sort of business university, I'd call it. 10 years of just learning a lot of... Uh, probably what not to do in, in the startup world. Um, that actually led to quite a major burnout uh, at the last credit credit crunch. So 2008, I'd say, I, I spent a couple of years on the sidelines just sort of licking my wounds. And uh, that led me to food because it was just a point in life where I think I started to have to you know, look after my body a bit more. I, I wasn't feeling particularly great mentally. Um, and that, that really sort of ignited a passion in food and nutrition and what we put in our bodies because i did i did notice that you know that made me feel better just from a from a whole mental point of view you know if you ate a really clean diet it does make you feel better so i got quite i got quite into food and understanding the food systems and, and really that led me to you know being in a position where i felt maybe i could do something to help which was you know i think you know big food not 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 by their own fault but if you look at um where foods come from in the last sort of 50, 60 years. It was a very kind of locally grown supply chain. It was quite healthy because we were all eating, you know, unprocessed food. And then, you know, post the Second World War and kind of like as the Industrial Revolution really started pumping, we started to sort of denature food. And I think that's really where um, human health suffered, you know, everything from agriculture to the way we process food. So 
I got really interested in understanding soil health. And that's why I'm quite a big believer of the organic movement. You grew up on a farm, didn't you? Yeah, I did. I grew up on a farm. So I've always been pretty close to nature. And, you know, I ended up, you know, in the city of London, you know, living in the city. And it really didn't do my health good over, you know, nearly a 10 years, over a 10 year span. So how did you get from that? So you've taken a couple of years off, you're in the sidelines, you're licking your wounds, you're understanding, kind of reconnecting with this idea probably of how you grew up in terms of nature and soil and what you put in your body and makes you feel better. How did Rebel Kitchen get born, as my three-year-old would say? I lived in central London, so I, I was kind of spending quite a lot of time in, in the big Whole Foods on High Street, Ken, um, which was kind of like the mecca of, of and if you think that I'm talking, this is like, 2012 or probably 2008 to 2012 and you know it's come a long way in the last decade but you know it was a really interesting kind of time to to see the kind of products you know i grew up you know thinking like drinking a can of coke was absolutely fine and and you know i think it probably was fine when that product was developed because we were doing we weren't sitting in front of computers all day we're doing a lot more manual labor and really the opportunity for Rebel was, uh, you know, my ex-wife and myself, you know, had a young family. So we were really interested in, in children's nutrition as well. Um, and so we, we were going to Whole Foods all the time. And I was like, I was looking at all these products on the shelves. I was like, actually, a lot of these products aren't that healthy. You know, a lot of people don't have a lot you know, nutrition and health is really confusing. You know, I read, you know, you read something like the Daily Mail and you see coconuts are a superfood one week, and then the next week there's a completely conflicting article telling you it'll give you heart disease or something like that. So I think there's a lot of confusion in, in the world of health, and it's kind of a word that's been slightly bastardized. Quick one. I'm thrilled to share that Strong Roots is continuing their support of Brand Growth Heroes for another season. Finding quick and easy meal solutions that are also better for you can be a real challenge for busy families like mine. That's where Strong Roots comes in for us. Their veg-packed frozen foods make it incredibly easy to enjoy delicious plant-based meals that everyone in my family loves, whilst doing a little good for the planet too. We love their sweet potato fries, crispy cauliflower hash browns and yummy spinach bites. Honestly, their products are a lifesaver for us on busy weeknights. What's even more important though, is that Strong Roots is committed to using clean ingredients that are better for you and better for the planet. They're actually one of the pioneers in terms of having their carbon cloud on the front of pack for full transparency of their impact on the planet. And as a B Corp, they're committed to improving this number, as well as all the ways they do business. I've been fortunate enough to work with Strong Roots since 2016, and I'm proud to support a company that's always striving to do better. So head to the freezer aisle and try Strong Roots for yourself. Don't forget to look at their ingredients on the back of pack. I think you'll be as surprised as I was at just how clean, tasty, frozen food can actually be. Thanks to the team at Strong Roots for their continued support this season. Good for you, good for the planet, good made easy. I was noticing a lot of the products on the shelf were in the health sort of category were probably in, you could throw them into three buckets. One, the sort of old school health products kind of tasted a bit like cardboard. So it was quite hard to get someone to kind of come from eating something maybe not so healthy into, into that into that kind of product. There was a lot of products on the shelf that I'd say were mas- masquerading as health food. So yeah, they had great, pretty packaging, but you look at the ingredient deck and I would say it wasn't particularly honest because there was just a lot of added sugars. Like the first iteration of granolas. Exactly. Yeah. There's just like loads of different sugars. Palm oil and sugars. And I'd say the last bucket were really good products, but 
they were really expensive and i just think they were kind of like they were products that were never going to be sold to mass market and ultimately who you know who needs you know help with their help and it's it's kind of like the guys you know you know that are shopping in like you know the major retailers um that are probably buying the the processed and maybe the, the more unhealthy food so that was really the opportunity i i thought you know i asked myself you know is there a brand out there an overarching brand that um i trust and you know there were some great brands that were sort of dealing with individual ingredients and were, were kind of named around those ingredients but i couldn't really think of like who's the apple who's the nike those brands that you kind of like you know you grow up with and you really trust you don't even you, you just know they're going to be awesome products so going back to your, your question you know how did rebel emerge it, it was kind of that but also from understanding what was broken in the food chain which was like i can understand why big food companies don't put their end consumers health at like the forefront of every decision because if you read some of the ingredient decks um you know how why, why does it need so much sugar and salt well it's easy because people love sugar and salt and it makes them repeat purchase but that's probably not doing them too well so so really the idea behind rebel was you know can we put people and planet at the forefront of every decision and that was actually luckily how we we came across beacon we traveled in the us and i started to see uh we used to go to expo west and i kind of see this little b logo and kind of got interested in it and it had just come over to europe i think it came over in 2013 or 2014 and we, we we were really interested so we actually when we originally founded rebel we were i think in the second cohort of european b corps so probably in the, like the first 50 to 100 b corps in, in europe and that really kind of gives you an understanding of or a framework of how to like you know build your business and and think about people and planet and, and, and every decision so you're probably one of the first food and drinks brands in the uk that was working towards b corp yeah i imagine we were yeah so this is what data we know. 2013 was kind of like one of the idea and we had the first product on the shelf 2014. Um, but really, like if I go back to the sort of original value set of Rebel, it was, you know, obviously the products have got to taste great, number one, or no one's going to buy them. Um, they've got to be made in an ethical and sustainable way. We kind of dropped the afford a bit. I mean, we, we wanted the product, you know, not just to be in Whole Foods. We wanted to have a chance of getting into the major grocers. So it had to be, you know, obviously high quality ingredients. You fell for the trap that all founders fall for, which is I wanted to be accessible to everybody. I wanted to look amazing. I wanted to have no unnatural ingredients. And it's difficult, isn't it, to make all of those things happen? You end up with a really slim margin because you have to shelf out a price, but you don't want to, you know, you want to put the best ingredients. So, yeah, I, I, I know a lot of you know entrepreneurs that suffer from the same problem in the early days. So let's talk about what was the range at that point? We actually kind of walked into the all, all, all milk market, which was quite interesting because back then it was pretty much Alpro and a few other brands. I, mean, I don't even think Oatly would really come across no. to the UK. Um, but we, we we had an idea just from our young kids. It's like we were literally we were literally only in our fridge for our kids. We had water and coconut water with the two. You know, we thought juice was a bit too high in sugar, so we were trying to actually formulate a sort of healthier drink for kids. Um, we came up with a milkshake which was uh, literally four ingredients. It was it was water, coconut milk, uh, cacao and date syrup was a sweetener. And you know, compare that to a normal milkshake, which is loads of sugar, loads of dairy milk. And yeah, it was a great product. It was like, I think it's what got you know, Rebel. Rebel was famous for its chocolate milk in the early days. We did little 200 ml Tetra packs and then that turned into like an adult 330 sports cap. And then we did a, you know, obviously different flavors across the range. 
So originally it was a kid's product, was it? It was actually an interesting strategy because we we couldn't see any competition for that kind of product. So we thought we could turn up to somewhere like Waitrose with that and get on the shelf. If we turned up with an adult milkshake, we thought actually they could point to a load of different products on the shelf and say there was competition. And, and it actually worked because we, we got into Waitrose probably within six months of, of launching. But yeah, so that was that was the first range. And then we we actually did a um, acquisition, which was our coconut water. So our, our pink raw coconut water, which was an amazing product I'd, I'd found in the US. There was a brand called Harmless Harvest, which was an HPP product. So if, if you're familiar with coconut water, most coconut water, like Vida Coco, is pasteurized. It's boiled to 150 degrees, kind of ends up sort of slightly caramelizing the fruit sugar. So it has a very specific taste. Still tastes okay, but if you if you're used to drinking, a, if you've gone to a tropical location and drunk of fresh coconut, um, our pink coconut water is just like it's just straight out of the nut because we don't use heat to, to to process it. And is that still the product that you have today? That is the one we have today, yeah. And we have, um, we, you know, as it's one of our main uh, products in our portfolio, we actually do a lot to give back to the Philippines. So. Um, you know, I mentioned B Corp, but we're also a member of 1% for the planet, uh, which means we give 1% of our revenue to environmental causes. So we actually direct that 1% revenue to to the Philippines and we we help uh, our coconut farmers um, basically to, to, to farm in a more sustainable way. Okay. So the Rebel portfolio today then, how does that stack up versus what you originally launched in terms of like, what are your big revenue drivers or margin drivers today? And how different is that from when you started out in 2013? Well, you know, we've been through a few different factories, I'd say, and the ranges have expanded and contracted and we've lost a range. I mean, yeah, you know, we went into yogurt. I mean, that kind of leads, I suppose, to, to where Nurture Brands, you know, we had a year probably in our fourth year. So we had a really, as I'd say, a successful launch you know, period of time, we, I think we did 500,000 in our first year, a million in our second. Wow. That's really good. We, we kept doubling to a point of getting to about three. And then we had really big plan to like double the business again. And we, we'd launched this yogurt product, which was amazing because it was taking the, the byproduct of the coconut water. You blend it up and we created these really nice yogurts. But I think looking back, that was probably a mistake because I think if you're a yogurt brand, you probably want to be focusing 100% on yogurts and really going deep into yogurts. And we, you know, we had coconut milk drinks and we had coconut water and then we were going into coconut yogurt. Which makes sense. You can understand why you would do that. And there's lots of founders who say to me, you know, I'm in crackers and I'm also going to be in crisps. I'm looking at hummus and dips with crackers. And you say, don't do it. We went from being, you know, you've had a long life product in in the milk drinks to a relatively long HPP 90 day shelf life product. So suddenly going to 28 days, which means you've got about 12 days to get it, you know, to sell through. That means you have two different supply chains, right? You have two different skill sets in the business. You've got three different buyers, potentially. Yeah. Yeah. So you say, you know, the team's grown and then suddenly it's the smallest revenue line in our business. And we probably are spending 80% of our brain power on it every day and it just got to a point where we the, the factory you know the quality was was not good enough so we we ended up killing it um which was well, you know a hard decision because it was a great product uh, it was the right decision at the time but that also meant that you know that that particular year we didn't double the business we actually just sort of tread tread water but we'd obviously you know scaled the team and the, and, and 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 the whole cost of the business so that's really that that leads us to the juncture our nurture brands was born um 
from being on this journey, I kind of understood, you know, you have a regional business plan. You're never, you're never, your business plan is never going to go exactly the way you think it is, you know, twists it turns and you've got to be prepared to pivot. Um, in my, in my case, you know, I had a couple of things going on that year. We, we didn't double the business. We stayed still. We'd hired a load more people. So our, our losses increased. Um, and plus I was actually, you know, I was, um, my marriage got into trouble and kind of like, I wasn't divorced as yet, but that was kind of emerging. So that, you know, that's obviously quite. Yes. Your headspace, you're focusing on two different projects at once. Position to be for, for, uh, you know, I know there's a lot of founders out there that do, uh, so you go into business with their partner, but you gotta, you gotta think about when that happens, it's hard to unravel, you know, your life alongside a business. So that was sort of a, a major distraction for, for for both of us that were in the business at the time. Um, so I, I was kind of speaking to people in the industry being like, look, I've, we've got this, what looks like a successful business, but we're still losing money. And every time I think I'm going to get to that break even point, it's, it still seems as far as it was when I was, you know, went from one to 2 million and I thought I was going to go from two to four and we'd be kind of cash flow positive. And it just, it's a hard industry because, you know, you, if you, if you don't own your own factories, you're going to have a pretty slim margin by the time the retailers taken their margin you got your logistics cost you got your team you know the fact is when we throw in all of our when we don't own our factories we know roughly that the, the sort of net margin will be 20 percent. that's throwing everything in obviously x x team and marketing um but that's not, not that's not a lot i mean if you look at our whole business model we actually give away two percent of our revenue a year one percent for the planet and being carbon neutral costs us two percent so we're actually paying away 10% of sort of the contribution from every product that we sell. At gross margin, you mean? Yes. So, so there's not a lot, there's not a lot to go around. Um, and you know, with a big team and if you've got a marketing budget, yeah, like I said, I, I, my original plan was well off. The break-even point was well off because I, I was thinking the break-even point for Rebel would be like three to 4 million. I, I think it, on our cost structure, it's probably seven or eight at the time. Um, so things needed to change. I had to pivot. Can I just ask you a question on that? Just because it's an interesting one. What was it that you were missing in terms of your thinking? Because all of those founders are out there right now thinking their break-even point is going to be three to four million, but actually it's seven to eight million. What weren't you factoring in? Uh, there's always a decision internally, right? Because it's everything from, like I said at the beginning, you know, are we, uh, are, are, you know, you've got a, we had a very strict value set of how, you know, how and what we'd put in products, right? So suddenly you get a bit of, inf- I mean, we've had massive inflation the last year, but inflation, so you absorb the cost or, oh, we need one more person or two more people. So just underestimating things like inflation and people necessary to grow the business. Yeah, but write up, you know, you never in your line, you may have like 1% you're writing off a product. And then we suddenly we're doing yogurt and we're writing off, you know, 25% of everything we're producing. So there's, there's just stuff that pops up at you and it just erodes that margin. There's less to go around. I think it's really important because everybody goes through this. And there'll be so many founders out there listening to this thinking, well, I was thinking I would be breaking even at three to four million. And so I suppose I'm trying to get to pin down or what are the extra things they need to think about when they're building those scenario analysis? We overheart. If I look back at my, you know, and I, I much prefer to talk about the mistakes rather than the successes, because I think that's what people can really learn from. We, we definitely overheart. Like we had way too many people for the amount of, you know, revenue we had. But like I said, we had three different supply chains, three different factories, chilled and ambient, right? So you just need, you needed a certain amount of sort of human capital in the business. 
Yeah, you did need it, but actually you'd made decisions that diluted your focus across categories and people don't realise that you can't use necessarily the same supply chain ops person. But then you do, you know, to get from a certain size to a certain size, you need those people. Otherwise, you'll just be treading water below yeah. a million turnover. So it's a really it's a really tricky one. And that brings us perfectly to Nurture, right? Yeah, and that's how really Nurture came about because, I, I you know, you go on the trade show circuit, you, you start getting friendly with a lot of the other 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 founders and, and people in, in the health food sector. And, um, and, you know, I was seeing everyone was suffering from the same thing, which is the growth trajectory is not a hockey stick. And I, you know, I'm fortunate to see a lot of business plans from, you know, new space. And, and I always advise them not to do that hockey stick. I know the reason is you kind of need the hockey stick to raise the investment because <laughs> people don't want to invest in something that's just going to be a really slow diagonal kind of like grind over like a decade or even two decades. Let's explain the hockey stick concept for anyone out there who's feeling that they don't understand and they don't want to ask the question. What I see in most people's business plan is they they kind of spend the first couple of years building at quite a slow pace. So maybe they're doing one or two hundred thousand in the first year, and that may build to three or four hundred. But then in, in the second year, but then maybe in the third year, you see that hockey stick go to like one and a half million, and then and then in the fourth year, it's like four or five million, and you know you have, you have like this hyper growth. So it goes like that rather than what I'd say is it's just like it probably over ten years because. The thing with the grocery game is it just takes time to develop a brand and, you know, get the awareness. And, you know, you're not you're not always going to just get multiple listings and keep them. You know, in our case, we've been in and out of nearly all the grocers with different ranges. It's just just how it works. So back to that list of what things we need to factor in when we're building that worst case scenario or probably most realistic scenario, we need to factor in it's going to take longer. You know, if suddenly you're not thinking you're going to do three million in the third year, you're actually going to be at a million. Would you have 10 to 12 people in, 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 in an expensive office or whatever? Because that the minute you've taken those 10 people into your into your business and you've got, you know, you know, an office rent and all the things, all the costs that come with that, you know, that could be four or five hundred thousand pounds worth of, you know, central overhead. And in, in the case of when I was saying, you know, you, you're going to be making 20%, that means you definitely got to be at 3 million to be breaking even. And so if you tread water at a million for a few years and that growth doesn't come through, it's pretty hard to unwind that because everyone's probably going to be on three months notice or an office lease. And then the other thing that people don't understand, I think, is or they don't consider is that when you're trying to unfortunately let people go and downsize, it takes six months of senior management time or founder time to work through that. And then your eye is not in the ball of driving growth. And raising money, you know, because a lot of people are on that, you know, they're on that kind of one to one year to maybe 18 month cycle of needing cash. But to raise cash, it takes six months usually. And it's a, it's a lot of, you know, of the founder and usually a few of them, the senior yeah. people in the business, not really focusing on what's going on in the business. So back to nurture it's really really that that's the whole model you know nurture brands is a is a cohort of now eight you know better for you drinks and snacks brands and what we're doing there is um you know taking brands that perhaps have been on that journey where they kind of you know for us we like to have seen them to scale at least a million of revenue because we think there's clearly consumer demand at that at, the, at that level but most of the brands we've kind of inherited or, or purchased have um, have kind of had the same life cycle, which is they've great ideas, great brand. It's just the growth hasn't come through when they thought. So they've gone and they've 
they've done their friends and family round. They may have done a bit of Cedars or, or Crowdcube, you know, um, and then, you know, in many cases gone actually to private equity and actually raised that big chunk of cash. But that's when the sort of the clock really starts ticking because if you, if you take two or three million off a private equity company, you know, they, they expect results kind of agreed business plan. And if that growth doesn't come through and you run out of money again, that's a pretty sticky situation for a founder because um, you've either got some pretty, um, you know, pissed off shareholders that kind of are like, we, well, we invested all this money with you and you've, you've created a much smaller business. And, and everyone, you know, there's always, there's always valid excuses why the growth didn't come through. Dealing, you know, dealing with, you know, big grocers, you know, they can't promise you listings. Like you think you're going to get a listing, but you don't know, know when it's coming. Um, you know, we're 10 years into Rebel Kitchen and, you know, I'd say our coconut water product is hopefully going to go national in the next 12 months. And that's taken nearly eight to nine years to get there. Um, so yeah, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of these businesses just run out of, they kind of run out of road with their current like cost structure. They've, they've got, they've hired too many people. They've got too much cost and too little revenue. And therefore the margin contribution to fund the cost of running the business just doesn't work anymore. And so how Nurture Brands works is we, we we aggregate brands onto one platform because you know we all we all need those central office functions, you know, finance, marketing, sales, and operations. Um it's just like, you know, we're mainly UK focused and we have great relationships now with all the grocers, um, you know, a centralized warehouse. Um uh, it's three, you know, it's third party, but it's you know, we we don't have any of our own factories. But ultimately, a lot of a, a, a lot of these businesses can literally just plug into our platform. If you're the smart founder of a scaling brand and you're inspired by what you're learning on this podcast, why not check out our Brand Growth Heroes Accelerator program? Over the past three years, our bespoke framework, tools and coaching has helped over 80 founders of early stage scaling brands make decisions that have supercharged their growth. The results have been phenomenal. Things like first listings in national retailers and airlines, doubling of revenues, new star products or key hires, or even offers from all five dragons on the den. The program offers you a suite of bespoke lessons, tools, one-to-one coaching, group workshops, and access to a growing network of support from smart founders of grocery brands just like you. We love you, Fiona. And you've been an incredible mentor to us and your program was wildly helpful. So if anyone is thinking of doing it, we really recommend it and don't think we would be able to get here without having done it. So if you want the framework and tools that will help you make decisions that will take your growth to the next level, go to brandgrowthheroes.com and then click online courses. Then just press register your interest today. Thanks again to Strong Roots. Good for you, good for the planet, good made easy. I think it's important that we talk about which businesses are those eight. Let's call out for those eight brands so people can imagine this. And then the other thing is, do you acquire them or do they rent your services? How does it work? So we've we've acquired all of them. We we've we find that we need to have full control to make it worth our while because obviously every every sort of acquisition or integration does take a lot of bandwidth out of the team. We're eight brands. So the the founding brands were were Rebel Kitchen, Ape, and M- Emily. Um Emily focused very much on sort of vegetable crisps and snacking. Rebel's more of a beverage, organic beverage. Like I said, milkshakes, milk and, and coconut water. Um, 
we've got Miracle Kitchen, which is actually our US sister brand, Rebel Kitchen. It's just we had a trademark issue over in the States, but that that's kind of our overarching US brand where we'll we'll take any any product from any of our brands. It will always go under Miracle Kitchen in the US. Um We've got an ethical chocolate company called Doizing Dam that joined us late last year. Uh, we've got uh, Jack's Cocoa, which is a coconut, another coconut water brand, but that's an inter- interesting company. All their revenue actually comes out of uh, the uh, Taiwan, Hong Kong, and mainland China. Their revenue does? Yeah, yeah. So that's okay. opening the door to, to Asia for us. Although a, a majority of our revenue does still come from the UK, we are very much an international business now. We got Primal Pantry, which is uh, like bar company, like clean, clean label sort of fruit and nut bars and protein bars. Uh, we recently purchased did two other acquisitions at the end of last year. One being Abacus Seaweed, which is a really innovative seaweed snack, really great. If you haven't tried it, please try it. Um, and Indie Bay, which is a spelt pretzel brand. I like Indie Bay. So yeah, we're playing in a we're playing in a lot of, but you, you can see it's, it's you know I, I say it a lot. It's kind of like an ethical, sustainable PepsiCo. We have drinks, we have snacks. You know, when you've got those two things, you're kind of in many cases talking to one buyer in front of store buyer, um, but they all share you know one common thread or well, a number of common threads. Plant based, um, better for you. When I say better for you, we're just trying to create healthier versions of your everyday kind of drinks and snacks. Like I said, it's really hard to say what is healthy these days, but you'll you'll definitely understand all the ingredients on any of our products. Talk to me. What is your vision for Nurture Brands? Because you have a really exciting vision. Yeah, the vision. The vision is, you know, if you look across food, who are who are the big food companies? They they are doing exactly what we're doing, but just in a much larger scale. You know, Coke, Pepsi, Unilever, Nestle, all, all these kind of companies. They aggregate you know, multiple brands on one platform and 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 then sweat their overhead across all of those brands. And that's what we're doing in a micro scale. Um and we don't even own our own factories yet because none of the brands are scaled. But the, you know, the idea is um, I suppose to own, you know, being on, you know, if you've got your own, if you're a single brand, which I was when I had Rebel Kitchen, I had some pretty sleepless nights because at the time we were hugely Waitrose, you know, focused brand. So if I looked at the pie chart of risk, it, you know, yes, we had two or three product ranges. So the revenue was split between those ranges, but at one, one main customer, if they turned us off, we were dead. So when I, when I look at what we've got at Nurture is actually, we've got, you know, all these, all the brands and all these different supply chains and all these different customers now globally. And if you put that in a pie chart, not, not, not one little wedge of the pie chart really scares me because even if it got turned off, it wouldn't, we wouldn't lose our business overnight. So that, I think that's the big difference between, you know, an individual brand to what we've got going on. And you're also spreading the risk across category and you're spreading the risk across seasonality. You're spreading the risk internationally. Yeah. And then, and then the other big thing, I, I suppose, is, is, and definitely what I've seen in the past sort of 12 months, um, is as we've, you know, we're, our whole portfolio is now going to push through 10 million of revenue. You, you become a more meaningful customer to the big grocers, which ultimately are where all the volume, the big volume gets, gets driven. Um, so rather than, you know, just speaking to junior buyers, we have more meaningful chats with, with, with people higher up in those organizations. And, and they obviously like what we're doing because we are, uh, you know, I hope, I hope you can see we're like genuine about our, our environment, our environmental and health concerns. And, um, hopefully we want to be a great partner where we're like a one stop shop for, for any, any sort of healthy drinks and snacks. 
So 10 million now, what's the plan in 10 years' time? It sounds a big number, but I do I do believe we can get to a billion inside, I wouldn't say 10 years, but I mean, next step will be 100. But I do believe we can scale this, not just with the brands we've got. I think the strategy clearly is it's a buy and build strategy. So with all these acquire other brands, but we'll also organically grow what's working. And that's sort of going back to the strategy again. Not every brand will make it. In fact, we've actually retired Ape this year. One of our, I didn't mention that, but that, that's been retired. We actually took its best product and made it, made it a Rebel Kitchen product. But so not, not always will we acquire brands and, and keep them because obviously brands are hungry mouths to feed. You know, you've got to, you've obviously got to innovate and you've got to, you know, constantly, you know, work on evolving the brand. So in, in some cases, if we find a really interesting like supply chain and product, but maybe the brand's not strong, we can actually just, bolt it into one of our existing bigger brands, which gives it, you know, a wider footprint in, in the grocery store. And there's, there's maybe a more loyal following because it's been in the market longer. Many ways to do deals. Talk to us about deals then. So how does this work for the founder? Say I'm a founder and I am really struggling at one and a half million or three million. I can't see a way through this. I'm losing heart. How does this work for me? Do I get cash? What do I get if I come to you guys? To date, we've really only done um, pure equity deals. Um, so, yeah, we're not going to be the guys paying you many multiples of, of revenue. It's just not, it's not the game we're in. But I think, I think what we can offer, you know, a brand that perhaps maybe, you know, towards the end of the road, they're struggling to get funding, mainly because of the, you know, the situation that we discussed earlier. We offer them a, you know, a small carry. So you become part of the nurture family. You get nurture brand share. So no longer are you just, you know, have you got, you got exposure to that one brand that you're bringing along? You then get a piece of all of our brands, which, like I said, I think is, is a nice position to be because we've got a really great portfolio now. So the founder's taking a bet that nurture brands has a better chance of scaling their baby than they do and that actually their equity share is more valuable in nurture brands than in just their own brand. Well, yeah, because you may, you, you know, you may be in a place where being like, I'm not even sure if my brand's going to make it over the next 12 months, right? So what we can guarantee is your brand will make it probably over the next 10 years and we can give it a good push because, you know, I've been in this industry 10 years now and I'm you know, I'd like to say I've, I've really got a great team now and, and we've got great relationships, like I said, with, with the grocers. So m- maybe in a, in a time where you've had to shrink your team, you know, you, you haven't, you haven't delivered the plan you thought you would. And if you were, you know, if you're thinking about, you know, options and yeah, we'll, we'll always take the call and have a look. But like, like I said, we can't, I'd love to look at everything, but we, we have to have seen a million of annual revenue to have a look. So this is your first criteria then. They've got to be hitting a million. What's the next? It's got to be plant-based. It's got to be better for you. Yeah, plant-based. The healthy thing is just like, can I understand all the ingredients on the side? And we can always improve the supply chain, but you know, is it ethically and sustainably sourced? Um, and that's really like the major checkpoints to, to, to like, does it pass go? <laughs> But yeah, no, it's exciting. I mean, but I think, I think, you know, yes, we've got, we've got there by buying smaller brands so far, but I think now we're kind of growing up a little bit. We're, we're, we're actually starting to look at sort of more sizable transactions, um, which will be how we'll, you know, I've set the team a challenge to grow 20% organically a year and we'll acquire 20%. So if you compound that, you can see how it rolls up quite quickly um, to, you know, maybe 14 next year and 20 the following year. 
probably 30 the following year. So, so yeah, there's a, there's, there's also a plan to perhaps IPO it along the way as well. A lot, a lot of the employees do have options in the company. That's important to me. Um, and they will need a route to liquidity at some point. Talk to us about the employees then. So how do you make sure that those employees have the same passion and authenticity and that comes across to the consumer base in the same way that those brands would have communicated or engaged consumers when the founders were in charge of that? Well, I think that's what's nice about, you know, being, uh, you know, using business as a force for good is, is you know, when people come into Nurture, I think they generally see we're, we're for real. So once they, you know, once they see how we operate and also how we, we treat our employees, you know, internally um, and everyone else externally, it kind of, it does the work. Like, I don't, I don't like to say, <laughs> you know, the, the the analogy, they drink the Kool-Aid, but, but it's... Uh, it's it's genuine, you know. Once you come into the business and you feel you feel how we run it, um, you know, I'm 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 in there, you know, half the week. Uh, you know, I'm chatting to to everyone in the team all the time. Are any of the founders still in the business? Uh, yeah, we actually have one 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 found. I mean, it, 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 at any point in time, we've actually had of the eight. Well, there's probably seven brands we've acquired so far. We've actually had three founders that have stayed for at least a year in the business and then, you know, gone, gone their separate ways. So we've actually, uh, what's really nice is we've actually, you know, if you think about it, we've got, I, I want to hear like what's gone wrong. I don't want to do, I don't want to make the same mistake twice. So yeah, we, we're, we're friends with every founder. Um, and in some case, one, one's still on, actually two, two are still on, two are board members, one's in the business still. So three people are actually still, still, you know, you know, in the business. We go and see the others on a regular basis as well. So we, we kind of know what went wrong before we own these businesses. So we're never making those same mistakes twice. What happens to the debt that the business has? So, for example, if it has friends and family loans or investment or it has investment from angel investors? Yeah, I mean, to today, we haven't really had that situation Um yeah, I don't think we've really had that. You know, if there is debt, it usually will get converted and then convert, converted into their company's equity, which will then get converted into nurture brands. But every deal is very different and we'll, we'll look at everything on its own merits. Okay, I suppose as well, when you go out and you crowdfund, if you don't succeed, the people who invested in your business lose their money. Or if you borrow money from friends and family or they invest in the business and you don't succeed, they lose their money too. This is just an interesting one, isn't it? Because I'm imagining that there's people out there kind of thinking, I want to pay back the people who have given me this money. How do I do that? So ours is a long-term bet. So I suppose in, in those sort of cases where it really is near the end of the road, so there's a big chance it could go into administration and therefore maybe the brand won't live on. To have a small amount of nurture brand shares and if we deliver our plan over 10 years and, and become like, the next, you know, ethical, healthy PepsiCo. Maybe those shares go up, you know, by, by many multiples over the next decade or two decades, and and you actually have a massive return. Yeah. So yeah, they may be underwater when we do the deal because it's just you know that particular business may be near the end of, end, end of the road. But that's why we kind of like structuring it like that because everyone has a chance to, you know, to to make a return. It just may, you know, you just got to be patient. Are there some economic rules in all of this that are kind of a givens that 
founders just aren't taking on board, particularly in food. I know there's more margin in beverages, the more, not necessarily juices, but the more water there is in a beverage, the more margin there is in it. What are the economic rules that people are missing in terms of, you know, you've got to get to X size in order to break even because these are the margins you said 20% earlier. You've got to have this many people. Can we almost create a bullet list of things that people need to avoid doing or do? Like I said, pe- people costs are always going to be the, the probably the, the thing that's um, that can get out of control quite quickly, and you can get a bit excited about the prospect of your your brand because you know maybe the everyone's saying amazing things to you, at, you know, big grosses and things, but then suddenly that range really gets pushed. Or um, the thing is, you know, if you look at the last three years, the amount of crazy unknown stuff that has just happened to us was just, I mean. I'm not sure we'll live for a period like that again. Maybe we'll, maybe it's a new norm, but you know, we had COVID that cut the business in half, you know, cut our revenue in half. We're, we're impulse drinks and snacks. No one was on the streets needing impulse moments. You know, we had a heavy, uh, an Asia heavy supply chain. So lots of containers coming from Asia at the back end of COVID, suddenly all the container prices went up nearly four or 500%. So exactly. you've had all, all this stuff. So there's always the unknown. So I think when you're building that business plan, there's just an unknown sort of disaster fund I would always have because <laughs> because you, you you don't want to put it in there but it will you know you hope it doesn't emerge but in in my in looking back at every year even before COVID there's always something going on. So it's basically overestimating revenue and taking on too much as a result in terms of cost base. I have seen a few that have been you know, actually got to profitability just beyond a million quid, but they literally are the founder and a couple of employees and that's it. And they've never, they've never gone, you know, above their means. Um, it's very easy if you've gone and been lucky and got a really nice investment round away and you've got seven figures sitting in the bank account, you kind of want to spend it. And I think as the, I think the other area I'd say that probably looking back in the old days, marketing, it's really, really hard to see if it works. So you you want to you want to as a new brand you want to get out there and you want to spend on marketing. But if you don't have national distribution, a lot of that money falls through the cracks because you know in our case, let's say we're educating, we don't have national distribution on coconut water, and we go out you know beating the coconut drum and spending half a million quid on outdoor media. And someone goes, oh, oh, coconut water sounds good. Then they go into their local sort of Asda or Morrison's and they'll go to find coconut water and there'll be one brand there and it's not yours because you're not on the shelf there yet. And they buy a competitor. So I'd say for me, you can spend a lot of money on marketing and not really get a return. You can also spend a lot of money on hiring a too big a team, which you need at certain points, but just make sure you time it right. And then have a little disaster fund because there's always going to be that you know, factory ringing you up and I don't know, your formula hasn't worked or something or whatever it is. They're, they're the kind of things that, that that for me can, you know, get a bit out of control. And then, like I said, when you're plotting your business plan and growth, definitely my experience of it is it's kind of a, it's a slow grind over many years. So I'd prefer to see it, you know, plotted like that than, you know, a sort of really vertical hockey stick in year three or four. Well, that is just super advice. It really is, Ben. And it's been lovely to talk to you today. Thank you so much for joining us and wishing you all the best in creating the next one billion PepsiCo, but much healthier and more sustainable and a lot of snacks and drinks for us all to consume. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure to be on. Thanks to the team at Strong Roots for their continued support this season. Good for you. Good for the planet. 
Good Made Easy. 